you're interested in the markets, I, I, I would, there's a lot of really good books. None of them um, definitely don't read the textbooks. Those, those things they learn in school, they're not useful. I would prefer books written by market practitioners. So you have the Market Wizard series where you, where you actually talk to real people and see, see what they're like. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chummy. Of course, the Federal Reserve right now, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, the Fed, Jerome Powell, they are dominating the conversation right now. The big picture macro environment is all about what is the Fed going to do? What have they done? What are they doing right now? So I thought we need to understand the mentality of the Fed, the mindset, what's going on in their brains for the decision making that they're doing. So I thought we need to have on the Fed guy, Joseph Wang. So he's here to explain all of these things. And you can find him on social media. He's the Fed guy. He's also the CIO at Monetary Macro. He's also the author of Central Banking 101. He worked at the Fed. He was a senior trader on the Federal Reserve's open market desk. So they're sitting at the center of the dollar system. It's ultimate and infinite provider of dollars. They've got access to all regulatory data, all financial data, and they've got open lines of communication with all the major market participants, the banks, the, the central banks across the world, everybody, you name it. So Joseph is maybe one of the smartest people that I could talk to, so I'm a little bit intimidated. In another life, he was also a lawyer. He's got a BA in economics from Northwestern University, a JD from Columbia Law School, and a master's in financial economics from Oxford University. So Joseph, I hope I described you correctly with all of your knowledge and education and degrees. I've never stepped foot on Oxford University. So it's impressive that you have a degree. You should there. have left out Thank the lawyer part. No, people no, don't want to listen anymore. <laughs> but I think the lawyer part is probably very important because so much of what's going on is related to the law, right? It's related to how are they interacting in a government setting? It's not just a banking setting. And maybe I'm wrong, you know better. Was Jerome Powell Yes, yes. I think lawyers make great central bankers. And thanks yeah, so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be back on Wolfion. It's a great channel. And really appreciate all the great work you're doing. And pleasure to meet you now for the first time, Eric. Yeah, it, it's fun. So it's like our audience will be familiar with you from the past. So it's nice to have you back on here for those that are familiar. First question I have, everyone thinks the Fed, they always say, oh, the Fed doesn't know what they're doing, right? Rates are either too high or they're going to let inflation get out of control. No one's ever happy with what the Fed does, but clearly the Fed they're reading whatever they're reading. They're thinking through whatever they're thinking through. They're meeting their people. They're having their discussions. They think they're making the right decision according to them. So my question to you is, what is going on in their head? What do they think right now about what they're doing and how do that's they- That's a great question. And it's something that's always on the market's mind because the Fed has such a tremendous influence on financial assets. So I think that's a hard question. Well, first of all, the Fed is many people, right? When the Fed gets together and makes a decision, it's a group, it's a big group of people. You have Fed governors, you have Fed presidents, and they all have a slightly different approach uh, to the world. But I will say, though, that today the Fed is more transparent than it, than it has ever been. So you have Fed people giving speeches, you have Jerry Powell giving press conferences, you have um, quarterly, you have this dot plot where they tell you what they think uh, the future will look like. So it's a lot more transparent today than it is before. They're so transparent now compared to what it used to be. I mean, you go back to the Alan Greenspan days, even earlier, there were no press conferences, right? There was not as many speeches. You, they didn't even say what the rate was. The markets had to guess what the rate was through the transaction. So do you think all of this transparency, all the talking that they do, 
Has that actually hurt monetary policy? That's a great point. Like you mentioned, back back uh, you know a few decades ago, the Fed was a very mysterious organization. As you mentioned, the Fed could hike rates and people wouldn't know whether or not they hiked rates. They had to go and look carefully into the money markets. There's, there, there's a good case to be made that right now there's too much transparency because there are so many different speakers and they all have slightly different perspectives and that could cause a lot of chaos. But I think overall, this transparency that we see today is really helpful for setting monetary policy. What would happen if they canceled all the press conferences? It's just, hey, this is the number. At least they just said, here's the number. Right, we're at five, we're at five and a half, we're just X, but we don't say anything. What, what do you think? So I think the, two how things think would happen would if we went back to the secrecy that we had before. Um, one, I think is, one, one thing first I think is that the market will uh, have a lot more difficulty pricing in the path of policy. And I think that will make the Fed's job a little bit more difficult. So for example, um, traditionally speaking, uh, we think of monetary policy as acting with long and variable lags and a good argument that recent Fed, uh, Fed officials have been making is that because we're more transparent, there's less of a lag. And why is that the case? Because when the Fed is really transparent, then the market knows what the Fed is thinking, and then they, they could price that into market. So, for example, um, a few months ago, the Fed was telling everyone, we're going to be higher for longer, we're going to keep interest rates really high. And you can see that in the two-year yield, uh, which was comfortably above 5%. That's because the Fed is very transparent, telling the market, how we're thinking about things, what we're going to do, that gets priced into the market, which of course immediately impacts the real economy. If you want to go out and get a loan, those are the market rates you're going to face. So if you have a transparent Fed, uh, the market reacts more quickly to what the Fed is thinking and the Fed is more efficient in pricing their policy. If we didn't have this transparency though, well, maybe the market would be not be pricing what the Fed is, what the Fed wants it to. Maybe the market is thinking that the Fed is going to cut really soon, whereas the Fed in their own mind is thinking they're going to hold higher for longer. And then what you would do is what will you see is you would see rates um, being lower than what the Fed wants and maybe inflation accelerating higher than what the Fed wants. So it would be a less effective way of pricing, uh, of conducting monetary policy. Now, now, the second point, though, that I would like to make is that one, th one good thing about having a mysterious Fed is that there's a lot more uncertainty in the market. The market when the market feels more uncertainty, I think there's less likely for people to go and lever up uh, because they don't really know what the Fed would do. Maybe the Fed, uh, maybe a market participant was thinking that the Fed would hike rates, but the Fed actually cuts because the market participant doesn't properly understand what the Fed is thinking. When you have these degrees of uncertainty, uh, you have people who take less risk, so there's less leverage in the system. So I think maybe that could make the system, in, in a sense, a little bit safer because you, you discourage risk taking. It's interesting you say that because it makes me think there are there's almost like a few points of rate policy baked into the mystery, right? Like if I didn't know what they're going to do, I could probably have a lower actual rate because people will just be, like you said, less likely to gamble, less likely to lever up. Where right now, you got to pound that rate super high if you want to get rid of that ability of people wanting to gamble. So it you do wonder if actually transparency by its nature, transparency is is loosening, right? By definition, it's it's dovish at any rate. I think the Fed, especially, has this history. The words perceived that it's a it's a dovish Fed because in in the past it, it's been very quick to cut rates. It's been very quick to ease monetary policy uh, when when it when markets have gone down or when it thinks that there's uh, some kind of economic slowdown. So um, that that definitely is going to condition the market 
to always think that the bias is towards easier monetary policy. And we saw that for, for, a couple, for the past couple of years. It wasn't until very recently until the Fed seems to have finally beaten it out of the market. You have a tweet recently. You said on November 14th, people can find it at FedGuy12. Joseph Wang at FedGuy12. As inflation declines, Fed would cut nominal rates to maintain real rates. Otherwise, policy would be tightening even as inflation declines and growth slows. So, you know, that tweet, people are all excited after CPI, the Fed is truly done hiking now, but they can't sit on the sidelines. So you point out they actually need to be cutting rates just to keep policy from tightening further. Do you think they would actually do that? Do you think they would risk igniting a melt-up or a bubble So the way stocks? the Fed views the world is heavily influenced by what you would read in school. Like the Fed recruits heavily from PhD economists and they have a certain way of thinking. Now, the way they approach the world is that they look at it through the concept known as real rates, and that is nominal minus expected inflation. Now, John Williams, the president of the New York Fed, recently gave a talk not too long ago about this. From my perspective, he seems to be trying to teach people about, about this because uh, going forward, obviously, inflation is trending lower, right? So if inflation is trending lower, then unless nominal rates are also trending lower, then what you, what, you, what you get is you get real rates increasingly higher. Now, from a PhD economist perspective, you know, you don't want to be increasing real rates even as growth is slowing and even as inflation is going lower. What that would be doing is actually be tightening monetary policy even as things are going in the right direction. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? At most, you would keep the stance of monetary policy. You would keep real rates at the same level uh, as you gradually uh, move the economy, move inflation towards where you want it to be. So today, as you mentioned, we had a good inflation print. Inflation was a little bit lower than expected. And I think the, the expectation going forward is that we, we probably continue to trend lower. It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be lumpy, but we're going to trend lower. Now, in that context, it definitely makes sense for the Fed to not cut policy rates to boost the economy, but cut policy rates just to maintain their current stance of monetary policy. And so we see that being priced into the market today. If you look at the shorter end of the curve, let's say the two-year yield, uh, that, that's been rallying significantly. So it looks like it's down about 20 basis points today. And you can see rate cuts being priced in uh, as soon as some probability of next March. You mentioned these PhDs that they have working at the Fed. It's a very highly educated intellectual organization. But then we see sometimes in the real world, the real world doesn't work like the equations work. They don't work like the theories work. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of, you know, all the stuff that we see with behavioral economics. People don't do what the mathematical theory says they're going to do. Do you think the Fed sometimes gets caught up in too much theory, too many PhDs, this mentality, but it's like, hey, no one's behaving this way, right? The reality of the stickiness and friction is causing a disconnect between theoretical policy Eric, you're preaching and to actual the choir. I personally, I don't believe that macroeconomics <laughs> is, an, is a useful way of looking at the world. I mean, uh, the way that I look at this is that they look at the world as if it's a giant math equation, but the real world is not a giant math equation because the relationships between variables, they're changing all the time. Like if you're doing physics, for example, let's say that I have something, I drop it today, it's going to fall to the ground at 9.8 meters per second squared. It's the same, it's the same acceleration and speed uh, 
whether I drop it here or in London, whether today or 100 years ago. So when the relationships between variables are stable, you can definitely break out your big math equation and you can, you know, you can do a lot of work there. But that's not how the economy works. That's not how markets work. And so that approach, I think, has been uh, not helpful in understanding the world. And we see, we, we see the results, right? So again, uh, just a couple of years ago, you have the Fed staff all in one voice telling you that you know, inflation is transitory, it's going to go away. Was not that way at all. Or uh, you can actually go back even further. So the Fed has these confidential briefings that are called teal books. They are what the Fed staff presents to the FOMC uh, when they make their decision. They get these classified after a lag. You can go back and look at the track record for the teal books. They are really, really bad. So I don't understand why anyone actually pays attention to this, uh, which is actually part of the reason why I like Jay Powell as Fed chair. Jay Powell, as we discussed earlier, is not a PhD economist, knows that models are you know, for reference only. So uh, I don't think that he places too much weight on this. But one thing I want, I want to go back to is you mentioned whether or not the Fed would be concerned about a melt-up if they lower rates. And that's definitely what's happening today, right? But I, I would take a step, just a high level, and note that the Fed is concerned the Fed has a mandate, which is full employment and price stability. Uh, it, it's not about growth. It's not about asset prices, although those things feed into it. There's also, of course, a concern for financial stability as well. So, you know, we, we have this huge melt-up. I, I don't actually think it impacts monetary policy right now because, well, we have inflation trending in the right direction. We have uh, employment at multi around multi-decade lows. Now, it could, you can make an argument that, a reflation of asset prices could make people go and buy more stuff and, you know, could make inflation rise again. Well, that's possible. But uh, I would also remind everyone for the past 10 years, we'd have equities continually trend higher and inflation was very subdued uh, until after COVID. I, there, there's so much to unpack there. I, okay. The, let me begin with the transitory inflation comment. That was just dead wrong, right? Just completely wrong and you've got all this group think going on over there all these smart guys that that think this is the answer and they were just they were wrong right like you said it we all know it they know it now and and you talk about the teal books you talk about these forecasts and that the forecasts are wrong or the dot plots of like here's where we think rates are going to be those are typically dead wrong too so what what are they actually putting credence and i think that's what i'm trying to get a sense for is who do they rely on for information? What are they reading? Or what is their Bible, right? What is the, this is what we believe and this is how we get there? Because it does often seem so far removed from the reality. That, that so we're all that's a good question. So how does the Fed go about gathering information? And how, so what information does it see? And how does that impact how they see the world? Well, remember, first of all, at the FOMC, you have a lot of people and they have slightly different ways of looking at the world. But at a high level, of course, you have the very, very uh, strong contingent of PhD economists. There's like a few hundred there. Uh, they get data. Uh, they are a, a huge, huge employer of PhD economists. There. I, I know, probably the largest. Wow. So, um, so what, what happened is that you know they have their reports, tons of reports, and you have to look at the FOMC as well. You have a lot of PhD economists who are actually sitting on the FOMC and making decisions. So they view the world that way. So they have their models, you know, the well-known Fed model, DSG, DSG stuff. Um, they, that's, one, that's one perspective. You have other perspectives of, as well. You have people who, you have a very large human intelligence network. So uh, if you listen to, let's say, President Barkin speak, he would, he would spend most of his time 
just out in this district, talking to people, talking to businesses, listening to how they're perceiving the world. And you, you have many, uh, you have many people in other districts who would talk, focus on banks or focus on, you know, energy and, and so forth. So there's a lot of human intelligence as well. And so they take all that together and, and they try to make a, a decision as to what, what to, uh, what to do. Now, historically, okay, so every Fed chair is different. Now, historically, when you had, let's say, Yellen or you had Bernanke, these are PhD economists people, so they would hold, uh, they would think place a lot of weight on how the PhD economist condition is thinking about the world. I think Chair Powell is a little bit different. So, but he's been going through, an, you know, I guess he changes every now and then. I remember when he first became chair, uh, he was looking at models and he was thinking that these are for reference only. And it sounded like he would emphasize more on his own judgment, maybe emphasize more on, on the human intelligence side. But it, it, it seems like when push comes to shove, he, he runs, runs to the model people and does what they think. Uh, and uh, we saw that actually very obvious in 2020 <laughs> when he was you know, all listening to the model people and just easing rates and doing tremendous amounts of quantitative easing, buying mortgages, even when home prices were going up 20% year over year. Now, that's absolutely crazy, right? Why would you be buying mortgages when, when home prices are going up 20% year over year? But, you know, that's, uh, that's a mystery. But I imagine it's because all the model people were telling them this is how you run policy. Uh, but today, though, today I think that, you know, he feels more comfortable relying more on his judgment, less on, less on the uh, PhD economist people. That that's, seems to be what he's hinting at in his recent remarks, but we'll see. He seems to change every now and then, but it's a complicated discussion. There's a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of different, how would you say, not interest groups, but a lot of different factions within the Fed will have ways of viewing the world. And so it's a, it's an interplay between them. It's like any company, right? There's turf wars of like, are these guys think this, these ones think that based on their background or, or in any classic you know, I think about a tech company, we got the sales guys and we got the engineers, right? They have a very different way of thinking about what's going to make, make the most profits. But you, know, you mentioned quantitative easing. What have we learned really about how QE really works? So now, you know, QT, would you say it's going well so far? Like we, and then we can get into some of these balance sheet conversations, right? The balance sheet has shrunk by a trillion dollars right? without triggering the repo crisis like we saw in 2019. But but QE and now QT, what, what do you think that they have learned? Well, and what have you learned about their is that They've learned that they don't really know how this works, which is why they want to get the balance sheet as small as, as, small as, uh, as uh, can work. So just a little bit of history on QE. So QE happened simply because we were at 0% interest rates and the Fed wanted to give additional accommodation. So the Fed's tools are interest rates. Now, normally that's just adjusting the overnight interest rate, you know, moving it up or down 25 basis points. But after the great financial crises, rates were at zero. So, and the economy was still uh, kind of you know, stuck in a rut. So what, were they, what was it fit to do? Rates are already at zero. So the idea they came up with was, you know, let's try to lower longer dated yields, let's say the 10 year yield. How do you go about doing that? Well, let's just go and buy enormous amounts, buy, buy hundreds of billions, buy trillions. And of course, if you have a lot of people buying longer dated uh, treasuries, treasury yields would go lower. So it was a way to stimulate the economy. Now, in retrospect, of course, okay, so that, that's one angle. And you also have a lot of people who look at, who focus on the quantitative aspect that the Fed is uh, printing money and buying treasuries. We're going to have hyperinflation and, and so forth. So I think there's two angles to this. One is how it impacts rates and the other is uh, the quantity of, of money in the financial system. So 
at when the Fed first started doing this, there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding as to how this would work. Now I remember back after 2008, you know, you, you had gold prices just go up every day because there's a lot of people who are, who are looking at this and thinking we would have imminent hyperinflation. That did not happen. So a lot of people in the markets, not just the Fed, didn't really understand uh, what, what, how this, what this was doing. And of course, the Fed thinking that this would stimulate the economy. Well, we had uh, 10 years of very slow growth and very low inflation. So things didn't really uh, unfold in the way that they expected. You have these papers from the Fed uh, that show that, you know, we actually did something doing quantitative easing, lowers interest rates, stimulates the economy. But you also have other papers who uh, look at this and think that it didn't really do anything. There's a very interesting meta study on this. That is a study of studies that shows that, you know, if you work at a central bank and you write a paper on QE, you will show that QE is a great thing, does a lot of things. But if you don't work at a central bank, the paper results that you get show that QE doesn't do anything. So uh, there's that as well. So you have to keep that in mind. There's some incentives there. So now, so today though, of course, QE is, is over and the Fed is trying to shrink their balance sheet. So what I think is happening is that one is that this is actually exerting an upward pressure on interest rates because it increases the supply of treasury securities. And secondly, I don't really think it's having too much an impact on uh, the rest of the balance sheet system of the banking system, uh, simply because right now the banking system has a lot more cash in it than it, than it needs. So uh, quantitative tightening so far, I think has gone really well over the past few, uh, over the past uh, couple of years, as you noted, we've shrank the balance sheet down by a trillion and everything seems to work really well. So um, it seems like things are going as planned and I think it could continue for another year or two. Explain how the balance sheet really works, right? How does it infect inflation and the economy? Because this idea that, okay, they're holding these things, often they're holding US treasuries, but it, it feels like, well, the US government is borrowing money in the form of treasuries, bills, notes, bonds, and it's the Fed that is buying them or holding them, but they're just another part of the government. So explain that that relationship. It just feels like it just we're creating money to move from one side to the other. What 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 is that really? I doing think you're touching reality? upon the key part as to why quantitative easing was not hyperinflationary the way many people expected when it was first rolled out. Um, so the Fed prints money out of nowhere and goes out and it buys a treasury security, right? So at the end of the day, um, it's kind of like, you know, printing $100 bills and taking it out and buying another $100 bills. So can I cut you off for one second? When, when you say so the Fed is printing the money or the Treasury is printing the money? For help our audience understand, who can print money in the U.S.? Can so they both print it or can only can the print Fed money print When it? they create loans, they're called bank deposits and the Fed can print money. They're called reserves. And that's how the Fed uh, finances all its purchases. It creates reserves out of thin air. Reserves are just uh, money held for money for banks. So they're deposits at the Fed and uh, commercial banks can have a deposit account at the Fed. And so when the Fed is printing money, they're creating reserves out of thin air and they're using that to buy, uh, let's say during quantitative easing, treasury securities. But think about it from a investor's perspective. Let's say that I have a million dollars worth of treasuries. I sell it to the Fed. The Fed prints money out of nowhere and sends it to me. At the end of the day, in my investment account, I have rather than a million dollars in treasuries, I have a million dollars in deposits. My purchasing power doesn't change. Fed created a whole bunch of money, but they used that money to buy something that was very money-like to begin with. And so that 
that action of quantitative uh, easing, what it really does is that it changes the uh, duration profile of, of uh, I guess, risk-free assets in the financial universe. So um, if, you, if you are someone, an investor who sold treasuries to the Fed, you don't actually have more purchasing power. So it sounds like the Fed is printing a lot of money, but you don't actually have more purchasing power, which is why it wasn't hyperinflationary. Um, however, if you have, let's say, a million dollars in deposits, rather than a million dollars in treasury securities giving you some interest rate yield, maybe, maybe you reshuffle that a little bit. Maybe you don't want to have 0% yield on your deposits. So you go out and you buy a corporate bond, buy some equities and so forth. That portfolio rebalancing channel has it, over the years shown to be very risk positive, but uh, not really inflationary. Now, to your point about the consolidated balance sheet, that, that's a really good way of looking at the world. So we have the Fed, they have a balance sheet, and we have the U.S. Treasury who has their balance sheet. Now, when if you combine the two together, what and the Fed is doing QE, what you can think of it is basically a big debt swap or, or rather um, just a debt operation where the, Fed, the consolidated government is changing the interest rate profile of their liabilities. So instead of having a, let's say, 10-year Treasury, they have a reserve, which is just a deposit. It's an overnight, uh, is an overnight loan uh, to a bank. Uh, so um, it, you're basically just changing the interest rate profile of the United States government to be more shorter, shorter duration. It, it, it almost seems like magic, right? It feels like, hey, we can create this money, help the treasury, but it's not inflationary and, and everything is good. But yet at the same time, they're trying to get out of that business, right? They've shrunk by a trillion dollars. You know, how far, how far low, I mean, we're looking at a chart here and we'll probably get this posted. You know, we were at, call it a trillion dollars, right? Sort of pre-2008, right? A round number. Then we seemed like it was a big number at two trillion. Then it became three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And now we're getting back down to eight. We thought two trillion was big. And now it seems like we'd be happy down to five trillion, right? What's even possible here? Can they even get that low? Can they go, can they unwind the clock a little bit? And, and if so, what are the impacts of that? If like you're saying, Hey, well, they can buy all this and it's not hyperinflationary. Right. But then, but then what happens so when, when you, you unwind, unwind it? it, you're extending the duration of your liabilities and you, um, that, that's a, that's a problem because you have to go and find people who are willing to buy longer duration treasury liabilities. You have to dump these treasuries back on the market. So the Fed is not selling, but them. what happens is that the treasury then goes and borrows from someone else and takes that money and repays the Fed. So in a sense, the Treasury has to go and issue securities out to the private sector and take that money uh, to pay back the Fed. And that increases the amount of the supply of Treasury securities uh, to, to the private market. So um, it, it, the, functionally, it's very much like selling, except a key difference is that it's not the Fed that decides the duration that the market has to uh, hold it's the treasury so if it was the fed going out and selling treasuries they can decide ah, i should sell 10 years 12 20 years 30 years but in, in it's not doing that so it's the treasury that decides what kind of new issuance they're going to do and that is what the private market will have to absorb and so far it looks like the private demand is is, is a little bit lower than expected so you can see the term premia that people like to do when they measure uh treasury securities has been expanding and so that suggests that uh, the private sector is looking for more compensation before absorbing duration. Yeah, you're, you are looking at that now where it's um, 
the the treasury there's these thoughts these risks of are we going to have a failed auction right are are not enough people going to want to buy these bonds from the treasury and this idea that there's so much supply that they're putting out there that people don't want to pay as much right so let's call it on a let's say a one year you pay ninety five dollars to get a five percent return when you get back a hundred right so maybe people say I only want to pay ninety four or I only want to pay ninety three I I want a six percent or seven percent return I want a bigger return before I get involved in this because there's just so much supply. How, so I would say how, how bad do you think this could get in relation to how low do you think the Fed's balance sheet? So it's not, all, it's not all going to be about the Fed. A lot of this is going to be determined by how Treasury issues their debt. So Treasury has some discretion as to where it issues along the curve. It can issue a lot of short data debt, which the market can easily absorb without too much difficulty, or it can issue a lot more farther along the curve, let's say in the 30-year segment, 10-year segment, where there's a lot less demand. And so if it decides to focus its debt more towards the short-dated side, then it can issue a lot and it won't have too much of an impact on interest rates. And it's been, it's been weighing its issuance towards the shorter side over the past few months. But at the end of the day, though, uh, the amount of debt it has to issue is very large because the deficit is large and also because of quantitative uh, tightening. So uh, it, it seems like going forward, you're just going to have uh, treasury interest rates continue to trend higher until you get to a point where, you know, maybe, maybe the Fed is it will have to step in for financial stability reasons. But I, I don't think we're there yet. We could get there uh, in the in the next couple of years, but but not yet. By the way, I'm curious about the, these target rates. We used to have a pinpoint precision, right? It'd be like we are at one and a quarter or even a specific number. And then when we got to zero, it became zero to a quarter. And then this 25 bips range stayed true even now. What is that relationship between the Fed and the banking system that that they still need to keep this range and they can't pinpoint exactly well, what rate it, they want it's to, hard to It's hard to pinpoint a rate. Um, so, so if we had a pinpointed rate, what would happen is you would have someone on the open markets that try to fine tune it. Uh, that's, that's really hard to do today. So. Back then, they implemented monetary policy in a different way. Uh, what they would do was they would adjust the supply of reserves in the system to try to try to move the federal funds rate. Today, the monetary policy is different now. It's really done through administered rates. So they have at the bottom of the range, they have the reverse repo facility rate. And at the top of the range, uh, they have the standing repo facility uh, there. So it's just implemented in a different way. It, I think it's hard to have that degree of precision um, when, when you're doing monetary policy through administered rates uh, range, that rather than just adjusting reserves back where we had a very, very um, small, scarce reserve regime. You mentioned the idea of the short-term issuance right now, and they could, you know, the, the Treasury can decide, do they want to issue 10 years, 30 years? Like, where do they want to be on that curve? And there was some debate recently about should previous people who had the job before Powell should they have, I guess it's really the treasury side, I'm sorry, that should the treasury, the job that Janet Yellen has now, right? And the, and the job that used to be hers, right? The job that she has now, like I'm, I'm getting tongue twisted here. The people who used to be secretary of treasury, they could have issued longer term debt when rates were zero. They could have gotten, you know, decades of funding and basically free rates. And there's been debate of, did they do enough? Yeah, Should so they have done that's, more? What that do you think about that? Stan Druckenmiller's point. So I, that, that would be true, but for the fact what, what, that the Fed was also doing tremendous quantitative easing. So let, let's go back to, uh, as, let's go to a scenario where the treasury looking, seeing that rates were really low, issued a whole bunch of 10, 20, 30s. 
to try to lock in that low interest rate. Well, at the same time, the Fed would be buying those 10, 20s and 30s. And in effect, as we discussed earlier, changing the interest rate profile of the debt and turning, turning that 10, 20, 30 year debt into overnight debt. So, I mean, the, the Treasury could have could have done issued longer dated stuff, but uh, it, it would have been undone by what the Fed was doing through quantitative uh, easing. So at, at the end of the day, I don't think it would have made a difference. Now, you do touch on a really good point, though. Now that so much of our debt is on a consolidated basis is overnight, both through reserves and through the ONRP, you know, doesn't that make our interest rate expense really high? So that would be something worth watching going forward. What do you think about that argument that the government doesn't want the Fed to have high rates because the amount the budget is, is that we spend, whether it's on, you know, Medicare, defense, and then Social Security, and then the rest of it is just interest payments on the debt, right? So if interest payments go up, we just bankrupt ourselves to pay interest on our own debt. And that maybe there's a little bit of a, of a, of a nod saying, hey, Fed, let's keep these rates lower because we literally can't afford to pay the interest on them. What, 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 are, you, what are you hearing so behind the scenes about that idea? We don't, I don't think we have to go behind the scenes about that. We can just go and listen to what Congress is doing. And you know, when I, when I listen to Congress, I don't really hear people saying that, my gosh, we're spending too much money. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't happen. So I, I don't see any evidence that Congress is concerned <laughs> about uh, our interest rate expense or any type of spending. Uh, so I, I don't think that impacts what the Fed is doing. But I think, though, that we, we can get to a point where uh, in the future where it is becoming a problem, either through very high inflation, maybe high, maybe the, the long end goes up too much, where maybe the maybe Congress will have to take a more active role in monetary policy. Now, to be clear, today we have what we think of as independent monetary policy, but that's not always the case in our country's history, nor is it across the world. In many, uh, for example, during World War II, Congress was best, best, uh, the Fed was basically responding to Congress, and his job was to cap interest rates to support the war effort. If you look across the world, uh, many times the central bank is simply a part of Treasury. They do what the executive, the elected government tell them to do. So. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that this quote-unquote independent monetary policy is something that happens sometimes in history and in some countries. It's There's nothing special about it. And we could go into a world where, as you, as you noted, where maybe Congress has a greater say in how Fed sets monetary policy because they want interest rates to uh, to stay low. They want the government expenditures to stay low as well. What about the debate that some people say the Fed is who caused all the COVID inflation. Some argue it was supply driven. The Fed had nothing to do with it. Others say, look, the Fed fiscal government was way too much. So the stimulus. Fed's tool is our what interest rates, right? That? That's, that's what they're doing, cutting interest rates and then buying tremendous amounts of securities to try to put down longer dated interest rates. So they definitely had an impact on interest rate sec sensitive sectors of the market. Now, like we discussed earlier, you know, you have house prices soaring 20% year over year. No, that's because mortgage rates were really low and mortgage rates were really low. That's that's the Fed. That's the Fed setting interest rates at zero, buying tremendous amounts of mortgage-backed securities. So, you know, if you have mortgage rates, let's say two and a half, two point seven five percent 2.75%, you're going to have a lot of people buying homes and that's going to, you know, goose home construction. That's going to put home prices up. So that part is definitely, uh, I think it's definitely squarely at the Fed's feet. They caused it. And if you look at asset prices, yes, that's very much interest rate sensitive as well. So that huge boom we saw in, uh, let's say, speculative aspects, speculative parts of the financial markets, I think that's all the Fed's uh, doing as well.
But there are also other aspects that I think are not the Fed's doing. So, for example, during COVID, we had a tremendous um, amount of people, baby boomers, retiring early. So we had a temporary shortage of labor, and that pushed wages up, right? That, I don't think that's the Fed doing that. That's just a bunch of people who, uh, for whatever reason, wanted to retire earlier than expected, in decreasing the supply of labor, and then pushing wages higher. So that's, I don't think the Fed did much to do that. Maybe they goose the stock market so much, so a lot of people retired earlier than expected. But that, that's an indirect impact. Again, we also had the fiscal side sending people a lot of free money and going out and basically just doing a whole bunch of fiscal stimulus, actually buying goods and services. So that's going to have a big impact on inflation as well. So when I look at the whole picture, though, you know, if you take out the uh, housing aspect, looking mostly on the real economy inflation, uh, I think most of it, it has to do with fiscal policy and demographics rather than the Fed. Again, they all have a role to play, but I think the Fed's role is is more limited to these interest rate sensitive segments of the market, uh, which is just you know one 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 slice of the pie. You know, there's an argument that the Fed's balance sheet is holding all of the losses on bonds, the losses on mortgage backed securities. So it's the argument is that it's insulating the private sector. The private sector is almost getting a little mini bailout. They don't suffer the losses of these of these instruments. So as a result, the Fed has to keep hiking rates. That's hurting the housing market, so forth. Do you agree with that? And do you think the balance sheet oh, is absolutely. blunting the, balance the impact, sheet is blunting of, the the impact of rate hikes? So one of the channels through monetary policy works is through financial conditions. So, um, or you can think of it as as the wealth effect, which, which they're connected. So um, let's say that the Fed hikes rates and I'm looking at my uh, investment portfolio. Uh, I own stocks. I own bonds. My bonds, you know, they're going lower in price because the Fed is hiking rates. I feel less wealthy. Uh, there's more, I, I spend less, there's more stress in the markets. And, and so uh, that, that impacts demand. And so that can slow down the economy. Now, how interest rates feed into equities, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to say because equities, a lot of it is emotional, a lot of it is sentiment, but how rate hikes feed into fixed income, I think that's a lot more sure. So fixed income, you know, it, it's it's very sensitive to where the how the Fed is hiking rates. So if the Fed hikes rates, you can mechanically expect a haircut on your fixed income assets. You will have losses on your fixed income portfolio. You will be less wealthy. You will uh, maybe not spend as much money as you as you would have. Now, the amount of losses that the Fed can inflict through rate hikes is going to, on the fixed income portfolio is going to be in proportion to the amount of fixed income securities the private sector holds. Now, when the Fed went out and bought a whole bunch of treasuries, that means that the private sector is holding less uh, fixed income securities because the Fed bought it for them. And they bought it for them. So instead of holding these treasuries, the private sector holds these, let's say, deposits, which uh, don't have any duration risk. So now then, when the Fed hikes rates, those securities decline in value. The wealth effect, it's felt on the Fed's balance sheet because the Fed took away that that interest rate risk. And the the person who sold the security to the Fed, they're not, they're not impacted. So uh, that decreases the negative wealth effect of interest rate hikes. And I think that made monetary policy a bit more difficult, a bit less effective than it otherwise would be. So I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. You help us understand now what's going on the last couple of years at the Fed, their thought process, the people involved, their interactions with with government and banks, other stakeholders. So putting that all together, 
what is the investment opportunity for somebody right now? Where do they take this? Because a lot of debates are, are we headed into a recession? Is it a soft landing? Do they have another hike in them? Is it, you know, higher for longer and they hold and they'll only cut if there's a problem? There's still so many questions. Even if they said Fed's not going to change anything for a year, that leaves us with still a lot of questions, right? Even outside of that. What are you telling people in terms of the investment point of view here? So first off, I think we should rewind a bit when uh, just still a year ago when the Fed was hiking rates and everyone was saying uh, the economy can't handle these high rates. We're going to have a deep recession. And now today, a year later, uh, more recently, GDP grew at a annual pace of 4.9%. So that is, you know, that's bonkers. And at the same time, it looks like equity markets are, uh, you know, quite buoyant. So we have to be we have to be careful when we look at the world. Sometimes things don't work the way that we we think they do. Now, the data so far for the past year has very much been showing a soft landing. So just rewind again. Chair Powell, a year ago at Jackson Hole, was telling you that he's going to rate rates and there will be some pain. He was thinking that he would cause a recession and that would get inflation down uh, and raise unemployment a little bit. But so far, though, uh, inflation has been coming down. Again, we had a soft CPI print today. It looks like it's trending towards the Fed's target. At the same time, unemployment has stayed around multi-decade lows and growth continues to be above trend. So, so far, very much, it seems to me that we're on track for a soft landing. We've been on this trajectory for several months now. So I think that's actually really positive for asset prices because going forward, uh, the expe my expectation is that the Fed begins a cutting cycle next year, uh, not because they're trying to simulate growth, but because inflation is lower. And as we discussed earlier, they're trying to maintain real rates. So I think this rate cuts, beginning of a rate cut cycle will be very bullish for just for, for, for the equity markets. Now, at the same time, though, even as we have even as we have inflation trending lower, we still have the federal government who has a very large fiscal deficit. They're spending, let's say, fiscal deficit around 7%, which is usually what you see during war times or during deep recessions, not when we're already growing above trend. So you're going to have a lot of fiscal spending that's going to be a tailwind for, for growth. So going forward, I, I think it's going to be a very positive uh, positive year for, for risk assets. You're going to have lower rates and you're going to have this huge tailwind of, of fiscal spending. And as, as rates go lower, you can have all these interest rate sensitive sectors of the market begin to, to perk up again. So, uh, you know, I think I think the equity markets in, in general uh, are a good place to be. What is the number one question people ask you when they find out you're the Fed guy or you, you worked at the Fed? What What is the number one question people want yeah, to know? Is the Fed really buying stocks? <laughs> <laughs> no, the Fed is not buying stocks. No, uh, there's, there's, uh, as far as I know, there's no secret plunge protection team. Um, maybe there's someone secretly somewhere has been banging the buy button, but no, that that's that's not what the Fed does. Fed is very transparent. I I don't I believe that they're trying uh, to do the best that they can. I don't believe there's um, any other hidden uh, hidden motive or hidden um, operations that are that is not public. If you were the chairman of the FM, oh, FOMC, the Federal Reserve, all that, what would you be doing? Joseph Wang is now replacing Jay Powell. What happens on day one or day 365? What, Actually, what I think Jay Powell step? is doing a good job. So uh, to be clear, as I mentioned before, we are on, we have been on the soft landing track for several months. 
I think what we, what I would do if I was Fed chair is I would cut in March and gradually cut uh, as inflation trends lower. Now I suspect though I suspect that inflation is going to stabilize at about say three three and a half percent. What I would do and what Chair Powell has not been doing is that I would be more vocal to Congress about the need for cooperation in getting inflation down. Now inflation is the Fed's responsibility, but the Fed of course cannot do this alone with interest rates. If the Congress continues to spend money. Now, when you're juggling around interest rates, you can toggle demand uh, because you know, logically speaking, if interest rates go higher, maybe people will spend less money. That's only true for private citizens. It's not true for the government who, as we've seen over the past couple of years, doesn't really care about interest rates. They just spend. So I, I would be more vocal in noting that fiscal deficit spending is making it difficult for them to get inflation under control. Now, the curious thing is, if you look across history, former Fed chairs, very vocal about this, look across the pond, President uh, Lagarde of ECB goes on stage and says that I'm trying to get inflation under control, but all oh, you guys keep sending stimmies, that's making my job hard. So what, what, the, what, what, the, what Chair Powell is doing in his reticence in mentioning this, I think is very surprising. And it, it might actually foreshadow uh, what we've been talking about earlier and that maybe going forward, uh, the Congress will have more power in setting monetary policy uh, because the Fed just politically is not as strong as it used to be. How, how did you go from being a lawyer to being a, a trader on the Fed? Unless I've got the ordering wrong. What, talk about the yeah, career so shift that I was. Uh, to so I was things. practicing law at a law firm in New York and I didn't like what I was doing. Not that there was anything wrong with work. It was just really boring. So uh, being a lawyer, you know, you see it on TV. You guys can watch uh, that a lot of a lot of lawyer TV shows. It's not like that. In reality, you are basically writing term papers for the rest of your life, sometimes late into the night. So it was really boring. I wanted to do something more about uh, more connect, more about figuring out how the world worked. And so when I looked at financial markets, that seemed really interesting to me. It seemed like if you were in the markets, you were kind of connected to everything that's happening in the world. And it was kind of like a puzzle that was always changing. So that seemed so much more interesting to me than, you know, figuring out whether clause three worked with clause four A and so forth. So um, I, I wanted to do something in markets, but it was a hard transition to make because, you know, after I graduated, uh, I graduated in 2008. And, you know, since then there was a great financial crisis and it was not a good place to be uh, in the markets. Eventually, though, what I did was I went back to school, got a master's in financial economics, worked in as a credit analyst for a bit and uh, just applied for a job at the Fed. And they, they liked my background, I guess, uh, doing a lot of quantitative stuff as a credit analyst and uh, just uh, gave me an offer. And so that's how it happened. It's a lot of it is just, I guess, luck. And, you know, what should somebody read if they're curious to learn more, right? Like, well, what, what is a book or a, or a leader or, you know, a biography or something nonfiction? What's something that inspired you that you think, you know, people so really I think need if to you read? ask to learn, you're interested in the markets, I, I, I would, there's a lot of really good books. None of them um, definitely don't read the textbooks. Those, those things they learn in school, they're not useful. I would prefer books written by market practitioners. So you have the Market Wizard series where you, where you actually talk to real people and see, 
see what they're like. Uh, I like reminiscence of the SOC, of a SOC operator. Again, a lot of real life experience, but by people who actually work. Uh, if you're actually interested in the financial system itself, how the Fed works and how that a monetary policy is made, you know, I, I can't, be remiss if I didn't mention Central Banking 101, uh, which you can find on Amazon.com, bestseller in that category. You know, we, we've got the the sort of generational heroes and and, the, and all those like the reminiscences of a stock operator. And now I see something current. I was going to say, what about your books, your information? Where where can people find more yeah, Joseph so, Wang um, If you're interested, <laughs> if you're interested in Show the book hearing again. more of my thoughts, book. well, I have a again. If you're interested in Central Banking, you can or the financial system, you can check out my book on amazon.com. Uh, if you're interested in my latest thoughts, I'd write a weekly research piece about what I think is happening in the financial system, what I think the Fed is doing and so forth. It's on my blog, fedguide.com. And of course, I also have a YouTube channel. It's Joseph Wayne, where I give a weekly debrief on what happened in the markets. It's not as awesome as wealthy on, but check, take a look. No, yours is, yours is very good. I I'm glad to have you on Joseph. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate you being so patient with, with a lot of my basic questions in terms of how does it work and what are these guys thinking? It, it, it certainly is clarified for me because I've had a lot of these questions at home. Like, what are they thinking? Why are they doing this, right? So I appreciate getting the, getting those, the, the contextual information. I think hopefully the audience can appreciate whether they agree or disagree, right? I think the Fed is certainly a a behemoth to be reckoned with and they don't fight the Fed. So to understand their thought process and their mentality certainly can help people in Absolutely. their investments. Absolutely. Forward. Joseph, thank Thanks you so much. much. And come back anytime. We'll see you soon. Everybody, thank you so much for watching this episode. I know a lot of you are watching and thinking, maybe I need to get some financial help to figure out how to invest in your future, your family's future. If you're already working with somebody that you trust, that's great, excellent, stick with them, keep working together. But if you're not sure you have the right person, you don't have anyone helping you at all perhaps, consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses. That's at Wealthion.com. There's no strings attached. You'll see the short form on the website. It only takes a few seconds. Like I said, it's totally free to have these consultations and there's absolutely no commitment to work with these advisors. Wealthion provides this resource as a free public service. They're looking to help as many people as possible get their finances on track. And if you enjoyed this video, if you enjoyed this conversation of Joseph and I, please like the video, subscribe to the Wealthion channel, forward, share, all of those good things. That really helps us and it helps get this video content out there, the podcast content out there so that more people can learn and be more equipped for their investments. Thank you again for watching.